Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. An Erio's original. Each week we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The Aftermath. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this episode of The Aftermath. Today, we're speaking with guest expert David Mickix. David teaches at the University of Houston and is the author of Stanley Kubrick, American Filmmaker. Let's hear what he has to say about The Shining. Hi, David. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm always happy to talk about Kubrick. And uh, yeah. Yeah. So we have a lot of questions. Uh, First of all, what inspired you to write your book, Stanley Kubrick, American Filmmaker? Uh, Yeah, that's a great question. And well, what directly inspired me was that an editor asked me to write it. (laughs) But but it was a perfect question because I realized when she asked that... um, I had uh, been very attached to Kubrick's movies ever since I first saw 2001, which is about, I saw about the age of 12 or 13. And uh, it just knocked me out. You know, I'd never seen anything like that. It was a movie that just changed everything about movies. And uh, then I saw a lot of the later releases when they came out. And, uh, you know, I thought back to them and, um, you know, Kubrick, it turned out, was really important to me. And so, yeah, the book, uh, Stanley Kubrick, American Filmmaker, is uh, in the Yale Jewish Live series, came out last year. And uh, yeah, I encourage people to take a look at it. So could you give us some backstory on who 
Kubrick was as a person? Where was mm-hmm. he from? How did he start his filmmaking career? Oh, sure. Well, this is, uh, this is really fascinating because unlike almost every filmmaker I can think of, well, there are some exceptions, but uh, Kubrick is very, very unusual because he taught himself how to make movies. Um, he's, he was from the Bronx. He went to Taft High School in the Bronx. Uh, and uh, he uh, did very badly in high school, he, so badly that he could not get into college. Instead, he got a job as a still photographer for, for Look magazine, uh, you know, major, along with Life, Look was the, the major uh, magazine for photojournalism, you know, so that was a real coup. But what he really wanted to do was make movies. And, you know, he read a few books, he raised some money from a relative, and he made a short called The Day of the Fight, which is still very interesting, about a, uh, about a boxer and his identical twin brother, actually, you know, on the day of a, uh, uh, of a boxing match. And, you know, then he raised money to make an independent feature. And, uh, you know, before long, he was making uh, Hollywood movies, uh, The Killing, first The Killer's Kiss and then The Killing, uh, two film noirs. And, uh, you know, he went on to movies that uh, probably a lot of your listeners are familiar with, like Lolita, Dr. Strangelove, uh, uh, 2001, uh, Clockwork Orange, Barry Lyndon, and then, of course, The Shining. So at the time where he takes on The Shining, Kubrick had made, you know, yeah, like you said, he's got many films under his belt. Where was his career when, when he's about to start this movie? Yeah, that's a great question, Rebecca, because uh, the previous movie, Barry Lyndon, uh, had not done well in the U.S. It, uh, it, it did well in Europe. It was a sort of slow progress, but eventually it did make a reasonable amount of money in Europe. But it was really uh, ahead of its time, Barry Lyndon, because it was a, a historical costume drama. It's a very fine film, an exquisite film, by the way, and one of his best. So that was 75. Um, But yeah, so Kubrick was, um, you know, I guess you could say he was thinking about trying to recover from that and Mm. doing a kind of movie that he had never done before, that is a horror movie. Uh, He had seen The Exorcist and had been very impressed by it. And uh, in 1977, he was sent the galleys of a novel uh, by a young writer. The writer was Stephen King. And the novel, of course, was The Shining. And so he enlisted uh, a a novelist named Diane Johnson uh, to to write the screenplay with. So Diane Johnson and Kubrick got to work on The Shining in uh, in 1977. So Stephen King was said to not have been happy with all the liberties that Kubrick took with the film. Uh, What were the major differences? That's a yeah. There, there's a lot of differences, and uh, the major difference, really, the the most basic difference, is that uh, King's novel is just stuffed with backstory. I mean, it's a, it's a very intriguing, very fascinating novel, and it has a lot of fans. But you you learn a lot about Jack Torrance's uh, life, about uh, you know his uh, his existence as a school teacher in Vermont, about his family. Uh, Jack, like Stephen King himself, is uh, an alcoholic who is trying to recover from alcoholism. So part of the difference is just that the novel is this sort of large, baggy monster, and Kubrick really pairs it down and makes it uh, 
you know, makes it uh, much more efficient. Uh, but there are, there are other things as well. I mean, Kubrick adds some of the most memorable scenes. Uh, he invents the idea of the labyrinth in which Jack is frozen to death at the end of the movie, for example. And, you know, there are a number of such scenes that Kubrick comes up with. Uh, in the novel, and for those of you who know the movie, don't know the novel, this will come as a, quite a kick in the head, I think. But uh, Dick Halloran, the cook, played by, uh, played by Scatman Crothers in the movie. In the novel, Dick Halloran survives and uh, goes off with Wendy. They become a romantic couple. And that's the ending of Stephen King's novel. So Kubrick and, Kubrick and Diane Johnson really, they had no idea how to end the, the movie. It was a long time for, you know, before they came up with the idea of you know, Jack sort of being overcome by his own fury and, uh, you know, getting lost in the labyrinth and, and, uh, and being frozen and being outwitted by his son, Danny, whom he's trying to kill. So uh, Johnson and Kubrick were thinking of things like, oh, Halloran goes crazy at the end and kills everybody, or Halloran runs off with Danny. So a lot of these early ideas involved something with Halloran. But, of course, as you know from the movie, uh, Dick Halloran is actually uh, killed by, uh, by Jack with a single axe blow to the chest. So there, I mean, there is a lot of speculation about the meanings of all of the symbolism in the movie. Can you take us through some of the more popular theories, like the blood gushing from the elevator, uh, you know, the Native American artifacts in the hotel? What, what, mm -hmm. what do all of these major things mean? Yes, this is a, a major subject of discussion, and there actually is a, a film, a documentary called Room 237, which is about some of the you know, more extravagant theories, uh, people looking for clues in the, in the film. But some of them, yeah, you've mentioned a couple already. Uh, it is mentioned by Ullman, the, uh, the manager of the hotel, that the Overlook Hotel is built on an ancient Indian burial ground. And this is a very important Stephen King topos. You know, he, he's written other novels in which, um, you know, this really plays a role, ancient Indian, old Indian burial grounds. But this is just sort of an offhanded suggestion in the movie. However, you do see things, for example, in the pantry, there's a calumet food, calumet flour, which has a, the head of an Indian on it. So some people sort of like to go to town on the, on the idea that this, the, the movie is sort of a take on colonialism. Um, and it is, in fact, a kind of Western. I mean, it's not so completely far off. It's just that I don't think you can take it too far. But what you can say is that here we have what is, in a sense, a pioneer family heading west. Uh, the Donner Party is mentioned early on in the movie. And, you know, there they are isolated in this strange place you know, surrounded by uh, evil forces. So perhaps this has something to do with the fact that the hotel was built on an Indian burial ground, but Kubrick keeps it very kind of, uh, you know, it's very, uh, very much just a suggestion rather than a major theme uh, to my mind. And then there are other things like Danny wears, uh, Danny wears Apollo 11 sweater. So those who think that Kubrick faked the moon landings, <laughs> 
strongly believe that <laughs> Danny's sweater is uh, Kubrick's admission that he had done this. Um, so, yeah, I don't really have to comment on that that particular theory. Uh, but, uh, yeah, what are the other... And, and then there were suggestions that... Um, you know there are references to the Holocaust in the uh, in the and uh, I don't see much of that either. Uh, so I think that you know in many cases this is true of other Kubrick movies as well. They tend to excite the minds of uh, of, of theorists of, of viewers who want to you know see clues to some secret in there. And in fact, of course, The Shining is about that. You know, Room Two Three Seven. What's in there? We're wondering, what does it all mean? And so just as in the case of 2001 or Eyes Wide Shut, you know, the, the movie seems to be gesturing towards some, um, some mystery. But the point, of course, is that you can't really solve the mystery. So people who think they can solve it by saying, aha, you know, I figured it out, um, usually fall short. What is The Shining and what, does it, what is it supposed to represent? Mm-hmm. Yes, well, this is uh, the the shining is a uh, shining is a capacity or a talent that one has, and there's an early interview in the in the film between Dick Halloran, played by Scatman Carruthers, and Danny, um, six year old boy, played by Danny Lloyd, and uh, what happens is that Dick, the cook, discovers that Danny has the power to shine, that is to communicate telepathically. And also to discern various uh, spiritual or demonic overtones so that Danny knows that a murder has occurred in the hotel. Um, You know, there's uh, the previous caretaker who was named Grady has killed his family, chopped them into bits. And so Danny, because he has the power to shine, sees these, these girls, you know, the twin girls covered in blood. Uh, you know, so he's he's in tune with all of these horrors. Interestingly, in the production of the movie, um, uh, this I think is a fascinating footnote. Danny Lloyd had no idea that he was he was uh, acting in a horror movie. Uh, he was, th- this knowledge was deliberately kept from him so that he wouldn't be disturbed. <laughs> so, but yeah, so you have that early uh, that that scene between uh, between Halloran and Danny which uh, actually took over 100 takes. Um, uh, You know, Kubrick uh, demanded one take after another to get it precisely right. Wow. So the pace of the film is very slow and deliberate. What do you think the intention was? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, there is a a sense of uh, Kubrick is trying to capture the monotony you know, the sort of endless dead space of this winter in which nothing is happening. And so you have those great moments like Wendy talking on the uh, talking on the radio to the, the rangers, and she's sort of trying to think of something to say, mm-hmm. and they're kind of waiting patiently, and then neither <laughs> of them is saying, it's like, all right, Mrs. Torrance, you know, and it's like, well. Uh, so, you know, there's that sense of, uh, that sense of kind of, uh, you know, just an endless, endless uh, space of time. And of course, Jack claims to be very, uh, very happy in the hotel. You know, it's as if it's a strange feeling of deja vu. It's the perfect place for him. 
but you know he's filling the time by doing absolutely nothing you know by <laughs> typing and that great scene he's typing the same line over and over again on his uh you know on his manuscript so uh part of it is just that sense of um uh, you know, he wants to capture this long, long winter. So in our episode, we, we talked a lot about the abuse we saw in the film. So the spousal abuse, the child abuse that's discussed, uh, of course, the cycle of abuse that is inflicted on, you know, the minorities, perhaps of this country, perhaps that's a metaphor. Uh, what do you think Kubrick was trying to say about this topic? Well, I think the the movie is a is a is a really great reflection, kind of crucial reflection on male violence, on masculine violence. And uh, you know, just a couple years earlier, you had Scorsese's Taxi Driver, you know, which is another um, uh, another central reflection on the same subject. So, um, you know, I, I would cite what uh, Diane Johnson said when she was writing the screenplay with Kubrick. She said, you know, Stanley, you know, he's such a gentle man, such a gentle family man. But, you know, he was able to write Jack so well, you know, it was sort of astonishing. So something in Kubrick, I think he was able to kind of conjure up this um, this kind of um, terrible violence that you see in Jack. And what is it about? I think that, uh, you know, it's, it's captured just by the idea of... Um, in part, you know, Jack is out there all alone, at least as he sees it. There is his family, which is a kind of uh, ball and chain, you know, on him. And uh, without them, he would be accomplishing great things. But of course, he wasn't and he isn't. And so uh, you have this kind of duel to the death between Jack and Wendy. And really the most terrifying part of the movie, I think, and kind of its climax is the famous staircase scene mm. in which Wendy wounds him with the bat. And, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's terrifying. You know, Jack is saying, give me the bat, Wendy. Give me the bat. Like, I'm not going to hurt you, Wendy. I'm just going to bash your brains in. Oh. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's like even to recite the line gives you chills because Nicholson's performance is so powerful. And uh, but of course, it's Wendy who gets the better of him. She is uh, surprisingly resourceful, as uh, you know, as Grady <laughs> says later later on. And uh, she wounds him and sticks him in the freezer, drags him over to the freezer. So um, you know, Jack really is undone. He's overpowered by this kind of uh, this you know this masculine rage, which turns out to be really about nothing. I think you know, and oh. so. Um, I can't really, uh, you know, it's the kind of thing that's hard to get to the bottom of just because it is so, so important, I think, in American culture and American history. I mean, after all, America is a land of, you know, vast nothingness, you know, these wildernesses. And it's also a land that uh, prizes this kind of individualist pioneer spirit, you know, a man alone. And, uh, you know, I mean, Kubrick, I think, is reminding us of all the of all the violence that can go along with that. And yeah, the abuse of Danny, uh, there's a lot more about that in the novel, but, uh, you know, here you have the, uh, uh, the interview with a child psychologist played by Ann Jackson at the, at the beginning of the movie. So yeah, it's all, it's all very frightening. Now uh, there, you know, there are plenty of stories out there about 
Kubrick having mistreated uh, actress Shelley Duvall in order to get a specific performance out of her. Are these true? Uh, is there any, are they, what are they founded on? Uh, yes. Yeah, so uh, this is something that Kubrick uh, and Shelley Duvall both were well aware of. Um, and uh, it's, it's, you can see it yourself in the, the film, the documentary about the making of The Shining, which was made by Kubrick's daughter, uh, Vivian. She actually shot an enormous amount of film, and it ended up being about a half an hour um, in the making of The Shining. And you see Kubrick, you know, shouting at Shelley Duvall in the snow, telling her she's getting it wrong, etc. But both he and um, and uh, Shelley realized that this was, uh, you know, in other words, he was trying to break her down. He was trying to get her into the character. And she said after the film was over that uh, she had learned more about acting from him than she had from uh, from Robert Altman, who had, uh, you know, she had previously been in. Altman's movies and had one at uh, at the Cannes Film Festival for three women. Um, so uh, you know, I think uh, yes, it was no fun for uh, for Duval, but she was, uh, you know, she realized the point of this, and um, you know, I, I think that uh, I mean, bo- they both knew how much uh, how much uh, Kubrick respected her, how much she, uh, you know, he wanted her work, and how much he needed her. Uh, for the uh, for the film. Now you've studied Kubrick. How do you think The Shining compares to his other movies? Yeah, that's an interesting question because uh, you know it's it's a real litmus test when you ask people uh, what's your favorite Kubrick movie, and uh, you learn a lot about people. For example, a painter I know told me, and this really surprised me. He said, "When I paint." I listened to the, uh, the, the soundtrack from A Clockwork Orange, and not just the music, but also the dialogue. So I thought, <laughs> hmm, interesting choice. So, you know, and then there are people who, uh, who love Barry Lyndon, don't really like Kubrick, but they love Barry Lyndon, which is sort of the Kubrick movie for people who don't really like Kubrick <laughs> that much, uh, which is fine. But, um, you know, The Shining is, uh, you know, I think has a special place. And uh, when, it, when it opened... Um, and this is, it had the reaction that a lot of Kubrick's movies had, that people at first seemed rather disappointed. And they said things like, well, it isn't really a horror movie. It doesn't resemble, you know, The Exorcist, which had been such a great hit a few years earlier. Uh, what is it exactly, they said? It seemed to be doing its own thing and not enough of a classic horror movie, something like that. Um, but, uh, you know, it really has stood the test of time. So I think that, uh, you know, there are themes in it that are very similar to, you know, I, I link it in the book to, the, to other movies. It's about, you know, these kind of shadowy forces that are organized, that possess you. Uh, you know, the Overlook Hotel is, is ruled by demons of some sort, uh, by the spirits of the past. So you can link it to, for example, the shadowy conspiracy in Eyes Wide Shut. Um, you know, you could link the concern with uh, male violence to a movie like Full Metal Jacket, you know, which has the same kind of sort of testosterone-propelled rage going on. Or, I mean, Doctor Strangelove as well in a different way. So, you know, there are themes that, uh, there are themes that unite them. But The Shining, I mean, one thing we haven't talked about so far is music 
And this is an extraordinary aspect of the film and a really path-breaking one. Um, you know, if you see it again, um, uh, you know, pay careful attention to the soundtrack because at times what Kubrick is doing is uh, he's layering several pieces of avant-garde music on top of each other, um, frequently music by Krzysztof Penderecki, the Polish composer. And then there's also some kind of heartbeat sound you know, in some of the key scenes, and then also various ambient sounds. So you have, you know, four or five layers of of music. You have this very um, revolutionary use of the Steadicam. When, when Danny is uh, going through the hotel on his big wheel, he's uh, being followed by a guy in a wheelchair with a, uh, with a camera. Huh. You know, uh, <laughs> Garrett Brown, who had invented the Steadicam, which is basically sort of, it's a handheld camera that, you know, where you can do tracking shots without any sort of, uh, you know, kind of uh, jostling or, or jumping perfectly smooth. So, um, uh, yeah, so the, uh, the, the Kubrick was a real perfectionist about uh, every aspect of the movie. And, uh, you know, that's part of what the, what uh, really has uh, made it stand the test of time, I think. So at the end of the day, we always ask, ask our guest experts this question. If you had to pick one person or thing, it can be a concept that you think is to blame for the deaths and the events that happened in The Shining. Who or what would that be? Oh, I think I would name Jack. <laughs> Not a surprise, perhaps. But, uh, you know, of course, uh, Jack's own view of things is that he is simply, you know, he has signed a contract. He is obligated, you know, to the owners of this hotel. And, you know, Wendy is trying to interfere with this. Has, she has no idea about the responsibility that weighs on him. That he is, you know, this contract that he has entered into, uh, but but yeah, he's uh, he's of course responsible for uh, uh, for everything, and uh, so so in that respect, it, uh, it it's peculiar because it's character study, you know, of this madman, of this crazy guy who's in a sort of macho revolt, uh, but who yet at the end seems uh, peculiarly empty, you know. So unlike the Stephen King novel, where you find out about you know, his family, his father, his mother, you know, details about his alcoholism, et cetera, et cetera. Here, you know, he's sort of a blank slate. But yeah, he's the one responsible. <laughs> okay, we're going to have to discuss this then. You've given us a lot of food for thought. Um, thank you so much, David, for helping us, you know, understand this movie a lot more. Oh, thank you, Rebecca. <laughs> this was so much fun. Thanks a lot. <laughs> A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. With us today, we have producer Clayton Early. Hello. And fact checker Chris Smith. Hi everyone. So I think we need to discuss potentially the reason why we didn't send Jack to the alarmist jail. Sure. <laughs> yeah, sure. we can talk about that. We do, this, is, this is the classic um, Charles Manson problem. When the Manson murders happened, we did not put Manson on the board. We Clayton, didn't that put was the, before your no, time, we, we put Manson up on the board, but we didn't put the Manson at the... the murderers oh, oh right the, the people who the actually actual did right. killing <laughs> we didn't even put jack up on this board Guys, just, no I, I feel like listening to david i feel like we kind of missed a lot i don't know about you guys but um we definitely I mean, didn't mention the soundtrack we didn't talk about alcohol or alcoholism <laughs> we didn't talk about colonialism per se although we, we did, did talk, talk we kind about, of talked yeah, about that yeah. yes no i'm sorry we did talk about yes. colonialism we did uh, talk pioneerism. about yeah. We talked about Jack's abuse, so and and yeah. being a terrible father. So there was a lot around Jack, but he was not like Jack Torrance. Period was not named. <laughs> he also said David also said something to put it on, you know, hit it on nail on the head, which is just male masculine violence, yes. mm-hmm. male violence. Um, we talked about abuse, but we didn't specifically yes. say male violence. Yeah, something you said that ri- I wrote down that I I. I loved was he he mentioned the macho revolt which mm-hmm. at the end of the day was empty yeah ultimately about nothing yes it's like masculine violence just about nothing which is like i mean profound concept. <laughs> <laughs> i would say in our defense i would say our conversation initially about the shining naturally kind of just went in a more broad theoretical direction whereas i would say david is the more literal answer it's like yes jack who signed this contract and feels the responsibility (laughs) is obviously to blame and i think there's room for both you know what i mean like if we're gonna if we want to be like super specific in a court of law yes jack's responsible but if we're looking at the bigger influences you Jack is influenced by his environment. Going up in front of a judge and saying, "Well, look, if we're going to be super specific in the court of law, yes, the defendant is guilty because he killed someone." Right. 
but I mean, like, who wants to like spend time talking about that stuff? <laughs> but like, isn't it so much more? That's just mm-hmm. the defense. <laughs> I know he killed them, but isn't there more to it? <laughs> um, no, I take your point, and that's true. And I and I loved our conversation. And something that David also said that um, made me go, "Hmm," was. You know, when you asked him about the symbolism of everything, he sort of was like, yeah, people can get caught up in that. It's like, <laughs> like some people right. do. And I was like, yeah, we totally did. <laughs> um, and, and it's good. And you know what it made me think of was the maze, the mm. hedge maze, which could have been a symbol for Kubrick basically saying, okay, yeah, like I'm going to put all these symbols in here. But if you go in there and try and figure out all the symbols you'll kind of end up like somebody who goes into the maze and you're going to get lost and there isn't really a end goal There's destination no, or yikes. any real like clear answer. It's more just the exercise. So the maze is a metaphor or a symbol for the, the overthinking viewer, <laughs> which was us. Just reading into things. Don't try and figure it out. Just experience it. Well, you know, if the three of us went to the overlook, we would, our asses would be in that maze every for sure. day. For sure. We'd be like, let's get lost in the maze again. Let's have a race. Who can get through it fastest? Well, you know, if you think about it too, you know, if 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 you're an overthinking viewer, you just might end up like Jack, cold and dead without mm. answers. Oh. <laughs> Hollow and empty, just ultimately not really much of a man. I I really appreciated his kind of uh pointing out the recurring themes that happened in different Kubrick films, like, you know, talked about male violence and full metal jacket, or even like to some extent in 2001, when the monkey first discovers like the hammer and starts like beating the other monkey with it. Right. And then like the shadow figures of, you know, the shadowy figures in the hotel, which are similar to like the shadow society of eyes wide shut. Like it's mm-hmm. inter- interesting to see these things recurring right. and in this setting, which is a horror film, like how they could, those things can really be kind of, really extra very haunting in a way that is different than something that's like a mystery you know yeah for sure it made me want to rewatch a lot of those movies yeah eyes wide shut i mean then i was like i i, I do i re- wasn't that a horror movie too but now i can't remember <laughs> he i mean a lot of his stuff is very um you know it's just very it's moody dark. But yeah like, it's moody and yeah they're all like really like even like space odyssey like the whole thing with the computer hal and it trying to kill Dave and Dave is like shutting the computer down. Like it, it, 2001 is like such a bonkers movie. It's not a horror movie, but that I think is one of the most terrifying mm-hmm. like sequences in any film. And it's not like a full on horror film. I got to be honest. I haven't seen 2001. Oh, so I think I have wow. to put it on my list. I know. <laughs> Look at Clayton is so excited. So he's, good. he's pumping his arms in the air. <laughs> 2001 feels like a collection of like different short films. Like you could just watch the like the Hal Dave interaction and like separate from the rest of the film and be just as like affected by it. I would mm. argue. Yeah. Anyway. So okay, so what are we going to do here? Are we going to are we going to stick with our uh, choice to send the Overlook Hotel to the Alarmist Jail? Uh, and everything that that represented, right? Everything uh, within yes. it. The, the Overlook Hotel was in jail. Lack of preparation was the big slap. Uh, here's what I think. Mm-hmm. I think what we arrived at, on like in a broader, more of like a, a macro level with the Overlook Hotel was like, 
pretty profound and I think well achieved in our conversation. Yeah. So I feel like if you're comfortable, I uh-huh. still feel good about throwing the jail, the Overlook Hotel in jail. But perhaps Jack deserves the, gets the big slap. <laughs> that was that was my instinct for sure, for sure. Versus poor planning, which I think in my own personal jail, like if you did that to me, you would be in Rebecca's personal jail. Poor right? planning. Poor planning. Mm-hmm. Um, As opposed to putting a battle axe into your heart, that would that would <laughs> that wouldn't be that you, you'd be in. You wouldn't be on the shit list if you did that. <laughs> No, if you're a poor planner, I think you'd you'd go first. That, that, wow, <laughs> that's and like a meta. That's like you metaphorically putting an axe, putting an axe through my heart. <laughs> because if you had planned better, the axe would not be in her heart in the first place, right? Is right. that yes. the point? Yes, it's just like you know, if you, if you really. <laughs> If you really want to get on my bad side, you know, be a poor planner and <laughs> put me through some poor planning, you know? <laughs> pack pack the axe. You can either put it in my heart or pack it. Okay. But do one of the two things. So, okay. So maybe that maybe that's... I got greedy. I wanted to, you know, put my own personal... Mix my own personal vendetta, you know? You're going to separate your jail from the alarmist jail. Yes, yeah. I do. So... I think we are, we're going to have to re- redo that slap. So, Jack, you're getting the big slap. All right. Okay, so we've, we've maybe fixed some wrongs, you know? Uh, and I feel good about that. Thanks, um, David, for that. For <laughs> thank, ushering thank us. Thank you, David. Yes. <laughs> for a great reminder. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> now, uh, Clayton, uh, is there any housekeeping that we have to do before we get going today? Um, um, I know that we're trying to get more reviews, which is really important right now, uh, because, again, they help us, I don't know, uh, rise to the, to the top, we'll get more ears on our podcast, you know, subscribe, rate, review, please, if you haven't already. Uh, it's a really important, great way to support our podcast. We're trying to take overtake Joe Joe Rogan in the standings, mm-hmm. and it's yeah. going to be. It's we've got a ways it's to really go. And we're going to need your help. <laughs> um, I will say we did get a really lovely review from Good Looking Man. Oh, hello! Not me, not me. <laughs> not, I know not everyone's Chris. thinking that's one of my fake handles, but no, it's not. <laughs> Um, and this is what Good Looking Man had to say. Eye-catching review title, five stars. Mm. I, find, I found this podcast a few months ago, courtesy of the big ones, and haven't quite caught up to real time, but I wanted to say that, that it's been a very enjoyable binge. In addition to genuine laughs, the show has been a useful tool in my ongoing quest to appear intelligent in front of other people. <laughs> there you go. Five stars. That's a great review. I love that. I love the honesty. Right? I love the honesty there. Well, you know, good looking man. Don't give up. We, you know, there's still a lot to learn and you can be, you appear even smarter in front of these people you, mm-hmm. you just you know the, the next episode you listen to just might put you over the edge it's true <laughs> if you casually drop a factoid in the right way it can Oof. just work wonders for your if yeah. you mention an article that you read or a thing that you listen to that people don't know about and then you say one sentence about it you're already better and smarter than them and then they're gonna yes. go back and be like no, thousand percent totally <laughs> and you know you know something that uh david talked to us about that was after we recorded the interview, which I'll mention, and maybe it'll make me sound smart. Um, 
<laughs> was that uh, Nicholson, Jack Nicholson, actually wrote one of the one of the most iconic scenes in The Shining, where uh, Shelley Duvall uh, walks in on him uh, typing. And it was actually something that was from his real life. So thank you, David, for that factoid. And I'm very impressed. Congrats. Mm-hmm. Even so though smart. I heard the whole thing play out yeah. uh, mere minutes ago, mm-hmm. I'm very impressed by your knowledge of this, Rebecca. And it's <laughs> you sound really smart. If you hadn't said David told you this off air, no one would have known and they just no. would have been like, wow. No, <laughs> but I can't take credit. I can't take credit <laughs> for that. <laughs> but, you know, I'm just showing you how you also can repeat these facts in a conversation and sound smart. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the alarmy has these, uh, they have these burlap sacks and we just fill, fill up those burlap <laughs> sacks with these, these great factoids. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Well, you know, thank you so much to everyone, uh, for listening and to David for being our guest expert. And of course, Clayton and Chris, uh, shout out to our, uh, researcher, Alex, Paul, and stick around because uh, next week we are going to be discussing the Lizzie Borden murders. Erios. Powered by ACAST. 